This is episode 158 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 158 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I have Jack Bernstein on the show and Jack was a really interesting guest. We spent a lot of this episode just talking about mindset and thinking bigger as well as all the different things that Jack is up to. So Jack's a very successful investor. Uh, He has investments in Owen Sound, in Oakville, in Blue Mountain area. And uh, he talks a lot about how he's able to generate cash flow, how he was able to make some smart plays, and how he's able to implement the house hacking strategy in the Blue Mountain area for extreme profit and a free place to stay when he's up there. So Jack actually had Olympic aspirations as a snowboarder early on, and that led him down a path where he got injured and started a company Uh, due to his injury because he had some time on his hands and he actually sold that company to a venture capitalist firm five years later. So he brings a lot of experience to this episode as a five-year entrepreneurial veteran who is now a real estate investor and is bringing some of that big thinking and experience to this game. And it was a really interesting opportunity to talk to him and I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Just before we jump in, as always, I ask you to please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Five stars would be greatly appreciated. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell and leave me a comment below just so we can help more people find this show and get that algorithm working. If you'd like to grab a copy of my cash flow analyzer spreadsheet, you can do so on my website at andrew-hines.com and just click cash flow on the menu bar. Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into episode 158 with Jack Bernstein. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Jack Bernstein on the show. Jack, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, happy to be on the show. Longtime listener. Oh, great, man. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, Jack, first off, how did how did we set this up? Because I booked 15 different podcasts all at the same time. So some of them blend together. Yeah. Mark Smith uh, had a nice introduction for me over to you. You know, oh, okay. I mentioned that uh, it was something that, you know, was a goal of mine to do and kind of get on the show and, and you kind of made it happen with the introduction. So I appreciate it. Okay. Awesome. And uh, if you don't mind, can you give me a little bit of your backstory, what type of real estate you're into and how you got there? Yeah, sure. So I've uh, been investing in multifamily for probably, I don't know, I would say two to two and a half years now. So mostly, you know, smaller multifamily, duplex, triplex, quadplex, things like that. But, uh, you know, the hope is to kind of grow into that a little bit. And, you know, I'm having some like constraints that, you know, most people have with mortgage qualifications and things like that. So probably going to start looking at, um, Mm-hmm. you know, some small rise multifamily now. Whereabouts are you doing this? Yeah. So it, it's funny. So I, I started in Oakville, um, quickly got priced out of that market, moved towards Hamilton, quickly got priced out of that market um, and moved to Brantford. Same thing kind of happened. And then now I'm in Collingwood, Owen Sound, Barrie. So, you know, markets that I would consider kind of tier two or tier three, but with the pandemic, they kind of all became tier two markets with people moving around. So, you know, golden horseshoe and above. Okay. And you live where? I'm in Oakville. Oh, okay. You're in Oakville. Yeah. I was going to ask why Oakville? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in Port Credit. So it was a natural, um, you know, it's a 10 minute drive from where I grew up. So, you know, it was, um, poor credits, you know, probably one of the most expensive postal codes, you know, 
in the GTA. So it wasn't necessarily feasible to move there right away. However, mm-hmm. you know, the hope is that one day, uh, head back there. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. So just walk me through the Oakville thing. Like when did that happen? When did you buy an Oakville? Yeah. So in 2018, I, uh, I was renting a house in Port Carter for my grandmother with my dad and my brother, and she had let me know that she was going to sell the house. So I kind of came at a crossroads you know, I was 26 and it was either, you know, go rent or figure out a way to make it happen and, mm-hmm. and, you know, get my first property down. So I got the idea from my grandfather to, you know, try to find uh, a house that would be an easy duplex conversion. So hit the market looking and uh, found one in Oakville, semi-detached house that, you know, already had separate entrance and, you know, had good ceiling height and, you know, mm-hmm. electrical and things like that were all kind of in line. So took a stab at that and, uh, you know, kind of made the deal happen, scraped, you know, the money together to make it happen and went through the process of doing the duplex conversion, which was, you know, a pretty heavy learning experience at the time. Cause I didn't have too, too much experience with real estate or, you know, construction or anything. <laughs> Originally I had budgeted like 30 or 35,000, um, in three months. And obviously it ended up being, you know, two to three times that cost and two or three times that timeline. Oh, okay. And did, did the numbers end up working out for you at the end of it? Like, were you able, can you give me an idea of what those numbers look like? Yeah. So it worked out pretty good. So, um, I bought the place from a distressed seller. So it was a power of attorney sale. So it was someone, um, whose family was selling off their assets and it was a, their lawyer selling off the assets for them. And it was the last property in the portfolio that they needed to be gone. So, you know, I was listed at 750 and I ended up closing it at 640. And, uh, you know, I ended up having to put around 75K into it. When I refinanced it uh, 12 months later, ended up refinancing at the time for, you know, eight to 850. But, you know, now it's probably worth 1.1 to 1.2. And it's just like your typical bungalow, like you'd see in Hamilton people converting, or is it a little bit fancier than that? Yeah, it's a little bit fancier than that. Like I would say each unit, um, you know, is about 1700 square feet, but the lower level unit has um, street level access. So it's above ground. Oh, so that's really nice. Yeah. So it's got natural, you know, light and it, it doesn't feel like it's a lower level unit or a basement unit at all. So, you know, that was pretty attractive. And I ended up getting a tenant, um, you know, back in 2018 to pay two grand a month for it. Still have that tenant today, you know, steady rent increases since and never had an issue with them. Yeah. I feel like, okay. So maybe a little tangent, but what are your thoughts on Airbnb being a unit like that in a place like Oakville? You know what? I think there's huge potential for it. Um, every once in a while I'll go on air DNA or kind of go look around and, you know, see what things are renting out for and believe it or not, you know, around my area, there's some like four or $5 million mansions that uh, have sheds in the backyard that have been converted to Airbnb locations that they're renting out for like three or $400 a night. Like just basically illegal stuff just in the backyard rented out on Airbnb. Yeah. Like some of them don't even have a washroom in them. That's what I'm thinking. Like, <laughs> so my wife and I are looking to, to move out to the country and, and, you know, we'd have some land and uh, we we're just kind of thinking, well, what if we were to put some yurts in the backyard or <laughs> something like far enough away from the house that it wouldn't bother us. Um, the only thing is, yeah, with that kind of thing, you got to have a place for them to use the washroom and stuff. Like what are those places doing? Are those all properly hooked up or do they just have some sort of solution for that? 
I would say some of them are, you know, it's probably 10% of them that aren't. Um, a lot of them look like they've actually, you know, professionally done them, but, you know, I would say most of them are probably illegal dwellings or yeah. um, illegal structures that people put up. But one thing that's interesting I did notice is that there's a lot of people uh, in Oakville who have trailers or, you know, mobile homes that they're Airbnb in their driveways as well. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I just feel like markets like that, there's not a whole lot going on for hotels. Um, I feel like oddly, like even in Burlington, just from, you know, people I know who have units, like you get tenants like pretty consistently too. So it's, uh, it's interesting and you wouldn't necessarily think so because they're just kind of small bedroom towns that don't, don't do too much, but, uh, here we are. Well, so yeah, Oakville's got an interesting dynamic now cause it's got, um, you know, Sheridan college, which is, you know, really, really blown up. And there's a lot of students that are kind of um, without housing. They don't have a really big infrastructure for housing there. So a lot of them are looking for short-term placements, mm-hmm. um, whether it's through Airbnb or it's your short-term rentals and things like that. And they're willing to pay a huge premium. Right. Like what could you get from a student? Like in, in London, students are paying like, you know, 800 bucks a bedroom on the high end. What are they, yeah, what are they paying? I, I, so, so some of them are, you know, I've seen ads up for like 13 or 1400 bucks and uh, just for bedroom and shared space with, you know, people they don't know. And I wouldn't say these are um, fully renovated units either. You know, these are things that are probably dated back to early 2000s or sometimes even late 90s on them. But, uh, you know, once again, it's just there's a supply and demand thing. Um, you know, in the area, I noticed Starlight has five uh, student condos going up right now for short term rentals. And for long-term rentals as well, too. So, you know, people are recognizing the demand and trying to fix the problem with supply. But as of right now, you know, you can charge absorbent prices for Airbnb and things like that. Yeah, might as well get get in while the getting's good. And then convert back to normal when uh, when it doesn't make sense anymore. Um, so are you thinking about doing that? Yeah, I think for me, you know, I'm planning on moving out of this place uh, within the next 12 to 24 months. I don't think I'll ever sell it. Um, I think that's exactly what I'll do for the unit that I'm living in now. So, you know, I'm house hacking the top unit and I think it'll create some great short-term cash flow. Um, the lower unit, you know, comes pretty close to, to carrying the whole place. So it wouldn't really take much to be cash flow positive on it. Um, but that being said, you know, I would love to replicate, you know, what I did here in Oakville. However, the prices over the past 36 months have just not made it really feasible, you know, just like everywhere else in the GTA. Yeah. It's so annoying, huh? <laughs> like I actually just, I, I just consider the housing like yeah. inflation price, you know, like I just consider that annoying. Like, I mean, a lot of people have made a lot of money and I've made money from it too, but it's just like, it, it screws with your business. Like, I want to keep doing what's working. Oh wait, I can't. <laughs> Well, that's exactly going back to, you know, when you were asking about what market I was in. So my first investment property above and beyond this one that I went to was Hamilton. And, you know, once I got two properties under my belt there, um, I was thinking, okay, you know what? Prices are going up. We'll go to Brantford. And I waited three or four or five months. And by the time I had, you know, taken a hard stab at Brantford, the prices were almost the same as Hamilton. Mm. So, you know, it's just pushing out very quickly, but that being said, there's still opportunities there. The opportunities are harder to find, but there's definitely still opportunity. There, see, and I, I'm glad you said that because I believe no matter what, there's an opportunity within 500 meters of your house. You just, you just got to know how to see it. 
it, that's really the question. Like, are you skilled enough or have you educated yourself enough to see it? Of course, we'll, a lot of us will spread and there's nothing wrong with that because there's easier opportunities in other markets. But uh, there's not, I guess the, the nice way of looking at it is that there's nothing that will stop, stop someone who's determined. Yeah, exactly. And I think when we look at immigration and, you know, our current macroeconomic policy with the government, uh, there's no real solution to fix the supply problem right now. However, there's, you know, huge immigration inflowing. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, in the long term, I'm very bullish on real estate over the next couple of years, yeah. even depending on, I don't really think if interest rates went up to three to three and a half percent, it would make that much of a difference with the yeah. people that are coming into the country and the amount of money they're bringing. What's your background? Did you study economics? So my background was a little bit different. Um, I had a unique approach. So in high school, um, I actually joined a professional snowboarding team, which was you know kind of like a coaching program. We actually had a show on Disney um, called Shred Education. So I did that and did the whole professional snowboarding thing um, for about ten years, and you know had some of the biggest sponsors in the world. And then when I was eighteen or nineteen, instead of going to post secondary, I actually moved to Whistler and was chasing the Olympic dream and, and kind of doing that whole thing. And I actually broke my back and ended up coming back to Mississauga where I lived at the time to recover. And while I was doing that, I kind of stumbled upon an idea. I was at a bar one night with uh, a friend and I had a call with one of my snowboard sponsors and I asked the bartender if she could charge my phone and she couldn't. So I literally had to leave the bar with three or four of my friends and as I left, I kind of thought, you know what, like they, they probably lost a couple hundred dollars of revenue, you know, mm-hmm. just because my phone died from us being there all night. So I had a friend's father who's an electrical engineer and I had this idea to like create a cell phone charging station for restaurants and bars, um, that they could have digital advertisements on and things like that. And because I had nothing to do and I was recovering from my snowboarding injury, I ended up, uh, kind of making a pitch deck and a prototype and things like that. And I raised, uh, just over a million in C capital for it. So, you know, as that happened, I slowly transitioned out of snowboarding and I had that company for about five years and grew it to about 12 uh, employees and then took some uh, investment from a venture capital firm that had a really cool concept. Uh, What they wanted to do was they wanted to bring five different startups under one roof in like a 30,000 square foot office and had shared services. So shared accounting, shared picking and packing. You know, share customer service and things like that. So you could operate as a really large business with low expenditures. And, you know, the business kind of came to a critical junction where, um, you know, we needed to create the next evolution of the product. And it was probably going to take, you know, five to $6 million. And for us to raise that in Canada isn't feasible where competitors in the U.S. were raising 15 or 20 million, you know, in U.S. funds. So at that point, you know, it made sense for me to kind of part ways with the business. The VC firm kind of took over the shares of the company um, from me, and I had a you know a little exit, which was nice from it. Um, and then they kept running with the company because eighty five percent of the infrastructure was already under the roof. So it was a really good synergy for them to take it. But you know, when that happened, um, that gave me a lot of life experiences from running a company for for five years. But I got to learn a lot of the complexities and the differences between Canada and the U S. So it's just like the same thing. You know, if someone scales a real estate portfolio here to 10 properties in the same time in the U S you could probably do it to 50 or hundred. And it goes the same thing with, you know, raising any venture capital money or seed money or anything like that for startups. 
you know, the U.S. just has so much more power and people are so much more aggressive in investing. And I guess most of it just comes down to, um, you know, a lot of their tax code. They can take losses and write off the whole thing. And we just can't do that here. So people don't get as aggressive with their investments. Oh, you're saying on the on the losses here on the losses, you can hear it, carry it forward as a capital loss, right? Like it won't it won't count against your active income, but it'll be against capital loss, ca- capital loss, capital gain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, in the U.S., there's other incentives for them to do too. They could write off the whole portion of it as opposed to fifty percent of it. Um, and then there's other incentives and things like yeah. that where they can get back. So you know, it just creates a culture where it's more business friendly and they're more willing to take higher risks than, you know, I would say Canadians are. Dude, if you wrote a book, I would read it. You should definitely <laughs> write a book about that. <laughs> Have you already? No, no. It's, uh, you know, I would say when I reflect on my path, I took an obviously very unique path as opposed to like most of my friends who graduated went to post-secondary, you know, kind of got their corporate job and then, you know, still chugging away at that. Um, I was lucky. I still got, I would say to have all the experiences on my friends that it thought more, but you know, the whole business aspect, which my grandmother calls, you know, street school or my street MBA um, really set the foundations for understanding how kind of real estate works and helping kind of scale that portion of it quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I think that, you know, all kind of makes who someone is right. You know, the things that happen to them. I think that the the nice thing that you had going for you is that you didn't go to school. <laughs> I mean, school gives a lot of knowledge per se, but it doesn't give doing. And then depending on what you study, if you don't study commerce, economics, you know, business admin or whatever, like it just ends up putting a lot of ideas that are not helpful in people's heads. So with, with what you've done, you basically skipped all that crap and went straight to the doing because everything in your whole career had been doing right. Going after the Olympics and then, you know, I got to do something else when you can't go snowboarding. And there you are running a business. That's incredible. Most people would get that idea and be like, nah, you know what? There's just too many people that could also do this. And they just stomp me out real quick. Like what gave you that confidence to know? Cause I've had a lot of this type of idea and just like, ah, you know, like other people have better capabilities than I do to bring, bring it to market. So what gave you that confidence to just do it? I'd say one thing I've been fortunate with, um, is I have a lot of ambition and I have drive. So if I have an idea, like I'm willing to try to do whatever I can to execute on it. I know what my strong suits are and and what they're not like the attention to detail in in some things, the administrative side and things like that are my strong suit. So, you know, I like going after the big picture and I sometimes feel that, you know, if you can portray the big picture in a certain way, Mm -hmm. you can get things off the ground pretty quickly and figure out the rest of it as you go. And typically when you're building a business, and especially when you're in the tech space, the critical components of the business within the first six to 12 months are how can you sell the big picture of the idea to get the funds to take it off the ground? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where you know I found the benefit really was. Um, and that kind of you know goes over to real estate too. It's the same thing. You know, Once you learn the skill of being able to kind of raise money and have those conversations and things like that, when you have private lending conversations, or you're talking about JVs. Mm-hmm. Um, and bringing partners and stuff, a lot of the information and skill set transfers over. And, and I, you know, yeah. background too, like I, I have a corporate job as well too. So I sell enterprise software to large businesses. Um, so I'm on sales as well. Is that something you're working to transition out of? Because I never really asked you, like, what's your goal with all this? You're obviously acquiring quite a bit of real estate. 
are, are you planning on taking that as to a, you know, a full-time gig at some point, or are you going to stick with what you're doing for the, uh, the full-time job and just keep this as investment? Yeah. So the goal is definitely to, to transition out of it at some point. Um, you know, anybody who isn't software sales understands that it's kind of like the dream job where it's in between being an entrepreneur and being on your own, and then also still being in the corporate world. You know, I can go two or three weeks at a time um, without talking to my boss. You know, I kind of run my own little business. But at the same time, you know, when you have your mindset on something, you need to have your mindset dedicated to whatever business you're building. And what I find is a little bit challenging is, you know, being in the mindset for one thing and then having to switch back and forth all the time. It's a little bit distracting. So, you know, at some point I'll do it. Um, However, I always tell people that are first getting into real estate and, you know, want to get their first place, the best job to be in is software sales. You know, most people their first year make over six figures and you pretty much always work remote and make your own schedule. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. The, the, the lower accountability is, is key, right? I, I love sales jobs for that. Cause you just, you, you get what you earn. And I think that that that's actually instilling a really strong lesson in people's minds too. <laughs> Knowing that, you know what, I really did earn this. I really did create value and that's why I'm getting paid. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, sales is, um, you know, great when it's good and it's awful when it's bad. Yeah. So, you know, there's pros and cons of it as well too. And it, it does carry a fair bit of stress. Um, but you know, you get compensated for that. But in your case, you're doing it right where you have, I'm assuming some, some fallback with your real estate portfolio, some cash there that you could draw on if you needed to. Um, so it's, it's not like if you had a bad sales year, that's going to break you. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. So something really cool just, you know, happened to me last week. I was basically running all the numbers on, you know, all the investments that I have and in, in the properties and what my whole monthly cost is for my whole lifestyle. And I pretty much passed the break even point where if I quit my corporate job, I could sustain the same lifestyle, you know, all my costs with a nice buffer room and, and be able to kind of transition out. However, um, I still think I'll probably ride it out for another 12 or 24 months on the corporate side, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm I'm probably at that point now, which is which is a nice feeling because I didn't grow up in a family with a lot of money. There's you know financial constraints and financial mismanagement, so that was always a big goal of mine. It's not, it's pretty awesome that you're able to uh, you know shake that off, right? Like you not repeat the fo- footsteps. I don't know if you've ever read um, the Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. He, he uh, T. Harvecker he talks about how you have like a financial thermostat that's sort of set by your parents. And if they had like a, you know, a thermostat set to like 70,000, like if they have one year that they're in 80, the next year they're in 60. So they come back to equilibrium. So uh, the whole idea of the apple falling not far from the tree, when somebody goes outside of that, it's like they had to consciously acknowledge it and consciously analyze and decide to do different, which it sounds like you've done. So that's really cool. Sorry for the long story. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. And yeah, that was the thing. Like, you know, I would say, um, my family was an interesting situation where they didn't have a lot of money, but they still had some, you know, they weren't, it wasn't like they're making minimum wage or anything like that, but where the downfall came was the financial mismanagement. So overburdening on debt, incurring the wrong kind of debt, you know, spending more than they made and things like that. And, you know, that was a conscious decision I had always made from a young point when I saw the stresses that that incurred that, you know, that was something that's avoidable. So from a young age, I kind of 
put myself in the mindset of, okay, you know, we got to make the appropriate adjustments here to be able to not go down that path. Okay. So you got another probably year or two you figure, and then you're full-time into real estate. Tell me about what you have in, well, we'll start with Owen Sound because I like that town. Yeah. Owen Sound, I would say, uh, you know, is a fantastic market right now. I, I feel like it's a market that not a lot of people are talking about. Um, you can find, you know, okay, decent four, four and a half caps on market. Um, you can buy properties cash flowing and a lot of them are good older homes with solid bones on them. So I just picked up a triplex there. Um, I locked up another quadplex there, which I should be closing on around March. Um, but that was a market, you know, that I kind of came to because of Collingwood. So because of snowboarding, I spent a lot of time in Collingwood and I'd always known about Owen Sound. And when I was looking at, um, you know, kind of B and C markets and running numbers, it seemed to be a place that a lot of investors weren't giving a lot of attention to. So you're saying for, for people who are going to Blue Mountain, they could stay in Owen Sound? I wouldn't say staying in Owen Sound, but because of my familiarity with Collingwood and Owen Sound, yeah. I was familiar with the market. Gotcha. Yeah. What do you think the draw is there? Because yeah, I think the other side of Blue Mountain was that uh, that little town in between. What's that town called? Uh, just Thornbury. Another name, but it's it's on the way to Owen Sound. I thought there was another one people would say. Meaford. Yeah, that's the one. Meaford. Yeah, it's an interesting. It's an interesting area. It kind of comes to a focal point where, like, on the other side, you have, I guess, Sawbull and Southampton area, and then you have Blue Mountain and Collingwood, and it kind of reaches to a point in Owen Sound. And you know, they have good infrastructure. They have schools there. They have huge hospitals there. They have government work there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's got a pretty strong economy. Yeah, big big hospital, and technically can function as a port where it is on on the water there. So, um, in the biggest city in that area by far. Like, I don't think there's anything within a hundred kilometers that's, that matches its size. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe so. No. And the rent rolls there are, are pretty fair. Um, you know, I would say they're pretty comparable to some other, you know, tier two cities that are just outside of the GTA. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for a two bedroom up there, I'm getting like 1650 or 1700 for a furnished or sorry, non-furnished, but renovated, uh, two bedroom. That's crazy. Now, would you have parking with that? Uh, some of them do have parking. Some of them don't. The, the one thing that's a little bit odd up there is there's some very different uh, lots. You know, some of them are completely paved all around. Some of them have no parking. Um, some of them go almost right up to the sidewalk, which is very weird. Uh, and I would say a lot of stuff up there, very similar to Hamilton. There's a lot of uh, you know, illegal units and different things like that. So, you know, the zoning hasn't been enforced like crazy up there, I would say over the past, you know, 15, 20 years, but it's an old town, you know, most of the houses there are from the 1800s. Yeah. It's, it's got a lot of character, you know, just having driven down the random streets that I've driven down going through. Um, I've definitely been impressed. And then obviously John Kepler, if, if you're familiar with that name, he's been on the show couple of times and he's heavily invested up there. Have you guys crossed paths at all? We have, we, uh, we actually just crossed paths this week. Um, yeah, he's like the king of, uh, Owen sound, but you know what he's, uh, he got in there, I'd say before the boom, like five, six, seven, eight years ago. Oh, and yeah. when you look at market trends and market prices there, you know, he must've made a small fortune. Um, I, I consider Owen sound like the diamond in the rough. When you look in all these groups of other real estate investors and things like that, they talk about every other city, but never Owen Sound. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm a, I'm a fan for sure. And, uh, you know, never pulled the trigger on it. Although I did, uh, did make uh, an acquisition up that way, not too long ago for something else. So, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the area and I've been going up there for a long time. Uh, Southampton, Sable beach, um, uh, Oliphant, if you're familiar with that area as well. So let's talk about one of these deals, whether the triplex or the fourplex, could, do you mind breaking down kind of how those numbers work? Yeah, so I just picked up a triplex there for five forty. Um, gross rents currently, uh, I you know couldn't get it occupied unfortunately. So uh, gross rents are thirty four hundred a month. Okay. Two two out of the three units um, are already renovated. There's one that's not, which is the lower level three bedroom. Okay. And then, you so, know, I was just going to say my strategy up there is typically cosmetic renovations. I'm not looking for foundational or structural work. Yeah. So with this one, what would you put into it? I'm probably going to put in 60 to 65 on it. You know, there's a dirt driveway, which I'm going to pave. Okay. Um, there's some exterior brickwork, which, you know, doesn't look <laughs> great. So I'm probably going to put some siding on that. And then, you know, the lower unit will probably need a 30K makeover. Okay. So is the 65 covers all that? Yeah. Okay. And so you're in for about 605 if you do all that. What do you figure you're like, would you go back and try and get a, a revaluation on it, refinance it at that point? Yeah, exactly. So the plans to burn the property, um, you know, I think ARV on it will be around 750 to 800. Um, okay. That was also from a distressed seller. Mm-hmm. And it was an on market deal, which was good. So, you know, in return for a quick closing um, and some c- other concessions, I was able to get a pretty good deal on the buy. Yeah, it doesn't sound bad at all. Like those numbers worked okay. I guess that's what you're getting at with the four and a half cap. Uh, when you buy, you know, you still have upward potential, but you're starting from there. Whereas in other markets, people are starting at like a two cap or something like that because the the rents are so low relative to what they're paying. So you're just starting basically what you're, what you're getting at. It seems is that you're just starting from a better point. Yeah. Which is okay. Like, you know, the property um, can hold itself, you Mm -hmm. know, while I work on turning tenants and, and trying to kind of renovate and get, you know, rents up to market, which is good. Um, you know, realistically, uh, I'll probably burn and do most of the renovations, things like that early spring. I have some other projects that are going on in the meantime, but, you know, tenants are good. It's a stable property. Um, and you know, it was, it was a great buy. What, uh, what do you figure you'll get the rents to? I think I can get the rents just over 4k. Okay. So let's call it 4,000 and just run through some rough numbers here. Uh, what will your taxes be? Property taxes are about 3,800. 3, and then insurance on something like that. I think about 220, 225. So that's about 2,700 a year. Um, maintenance, older house, would you budget a bit more than 5% or? Yeah. So what's interesting about it is, yeah, I would say, yeah, you could probably do 5 or 6%. Structurally, I was very impressed with it. You know, it was compared to what you, I'm used to seeing in Hamilton and areas like that, you know, it was much better yeah. upkept. Um, and not to get tangent, but so is this a legal triplex or did somebody just do this at one point in the city? The city doesn't push back on it. No. So it's a legal triplex. It, uh, someone did the conversion in the early eighties okay. and, um, you know, it's got all appropriate zoning and everything like that. Nice. Okay. Utilities wise there, are things separated or are you paying the water for the building? Yeah. So water, um, the, the 
tanks are rented. So that'll be on me. There is a common panel for a common area, uh, which I'd be paying as well. And then each unit is separate meters. What about heat? Yeah. Heat's on me as well. Okay. So is it a boiler like natural gas? Yeah, it's natural gas. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd suspect it's around 150 a month. If forced air or, it, or boiler? Forced air. Okay, so you have air conditioning for the units in the in the summer as well? Yeah. Okay, so what are we there? So 150 then times 12 plus you've got water probably at 150 a month too, would you say, right? Yeah. Okay, that times 12. And then you're going to have some electric, what, like 50 bucks a month? Yeah, it's pretty low with the common okay. area. So, so I'm getting about 4,200 for the year on that. Um, management, are you paying a management company? No, I self-manage. Okay. So again, not to get tangent, but we're on the topic. You're far away. How did you pull that together? Yeah. So I, um, I've been calling what a lot in blue mountain a lot. I also know some people that are in Owen sound, which helped me out with doing X, Y, and Z. So you know, it's okay. And as I said, my schedule is pretty flexible with work, which is obviously very accommodating. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Collingwood. So for me to go from Collingwood to Owen Sound, it's really only a half an hour drive. Okay. Only a half hour? That's it? Yeah, a half hour, 40 minutes at most. Oh, man. Maybe I'll go up there this winter. <laughs> that's uh, that's not bad. Although from, from Sobel area, it's more like an hour probably. Uh, maybe even further actually. Okay. So, um, no management landscaping and snow removal. Are you responsible for that? Yeah. Snow removals, 400 bucks for the season, uh, landscaping, you know, the lower level tenant was pretty much doing that, but there's really not much. Okay. So just nothing for landscaping. No, there's, um, there's almost no front lawn there. So, you know, there's no grass to cut or anything like that, which is nice. Okay, so I've got just a $500 miscellaneous allowance there. Um, so at a $750,000 value, you're a 4.47 cap rate. And uh, if you've got 80%, you're basically in for zero. You're, you got like $5,000 in the deal. Um, are you getting bank financing still? Yeah, I'll get conventional financing. Okay. So, so there's maybe. about $50 to of, uh, of monthly revenue from the coin op. So there's a coin op laundry, which is segregated in a separate building, okay. um, which is attached to the house. But the interesting thing is there's a quadplex beside it and they have no in-suite mm-hmm. laundry. So they use it as well. So it, bring, it doesn't bring much, it brings about 50 bucks a month. That's all right. That's a, a little, little cash on the side. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. Uh, okay, so let's let's assume you're getting around two point two percent at that point, uh, six hundred grand, thirty year am. So you're gonna have like five hundred and sixty bucks of cash flow. It looks um, when you're all said and done there, and uh, obviously there's more upward potential. Now, if you didn't get the rents up, then it looks like you're more at a break even, which is still not that big of a deal. Yeah, and I'm okay. You know, the cash flow. I take a kind of hybrid approach to it. Like I'm a lot of people are just specific cash flow investors. You know, I like a combination of appreciation and cash flow. So, you know, when you look at my portfolio balance and the asset classes and, you know, some are in markets where I'm going for more break even and just appreciation. And there's some obviously where I'm trying to cash flow as well. But, you know, Owen Sound Play is definitely trying to increase rents and, and has some positive cash flow on it. It's gonna have the same fate as other markets too. Like wherever the rents are going and 
you know, cities like Kitchener, London, eventually that effect trickles out and will affect those because people leave those cities and they go, you know, to places like Owen Sound because they think they can get a better deal. So um, I think cash flow, if, as long as you've got it to start, generally what we've been seeing is it'll it'll continue and improve if you're patient. So they think the key is just not losing. You don't want to be in a position where if there's a little correction that you're not going to lose, say if there's like a 20% cut in your rents. But um, I guess for somebody like yourself, you look at it as a portfolio thing. Like you're going to have some places that cash flow better, some that just moderate, and they all kind of balance each other out. Yeah, it's interesting for me too. So like when I look at my whole portfolio and call it my net income per month, you know, there's a couple other streams that I pull from that are outside of real estate as well. You know, there's some private equity things I'm doing and some other businesses I've invested in as well too. So I kind of look at the whole portfolio, um, obviously a siloed businesses, but, you know, I take a, a holistic approach of kind of combining everything. But, you know, my real cash cow, I think is going to be the Blue Mountain property, um, which is where I plan on kind of doing a luxury Airbnb. Yeah. Tell, tell me about that. I was going to ask, do you have any vacation rentals in your portfolio? So this one will be the first and I got super, super lucky on this. So um, there's a plot of land in Collingwood that I've always seen. And it was owned by this uh, big developer up there. And you know, it's basically an apple orchard and it's across from the village in Blue Mountain, if you know where that is. And he finally decided to let it go and sold it to another developer. So they built, or sorry, are building 70 or 80, you know, luxury homes, three to 6,000 square feet. So, you know, the second I saw that land go, I was on the developer for like a year and a half, just waiting for them to release, you know, phase one of it. And I was fortunate enough to be able to squeeze my way into the friends and family around on the first, uh, first go at it. Now, what's interesting about it is I picked up a 3,200 square foot, um, two-story luxury bungalow with a 1600 square foot basement with nine foot ceilings on it, which I'm going to make a duplex or sorry, do it, call it an illegal duplex on it, but I'm going to use the basement for myself. Um, and the craziest thing about it is, you know, there's this road in Collingwood called highway 11, and it basically splits the town of blue mountain from the town of Collingwood and where the property lies just happens to be on the right side of the road on highway 11, which falls into the town of blue mountain. So about six months ago, the town of Collingwood made an announcement that they're stopping all development for the next 36 months because they have uh, water main issues and not enough infrastructure to service new properties. So all of a sudden, you know, this place that I got for 3,600 square feet for 1.1 million, all of a sudden just jumped up like crazy. And I was getting people, you know, coming in and trying to buy, um, you know, basically my APS on it for 500K premium, 600K premium four weeks after I got it. Oh, wow. Now, the only issue I see there, and I'm curious if you can shed some light, is the short-term rental requirements and restrictions because they have licensing in Blue Mountain, right? So they have licensing for short-term um, rentals in a specific area called Tyrolean. But the interesting thing is they relaxed rules on Airbnb. So you know, if you look two or three years ago in Blue Mountain, you see maybe one or two units. Now you look on there, you're going to see four or 500. So you know, it's completely exploded. I feel like you could just live off of just what you make from that property. Like you could probably actually live a pretty luxur luxurious life just from what you can make from that property on Airbnb. So I have a friend um, who's, you know, similar situation, bought a different development around the same square footage uh, home right across from the village. And he's getting almost 2000 a night and he's booked up almost every single day of the entire winter. So like, 
you know, he's making 50, 60 grand a month on short-term rentals from Airbnb being it. And is what total costs to operate that or what, like five to 10? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say with everything, it's probably eight to 9,000 a month, you know, with carrying costs and, you know, your cleaning fees and things like that. Right. Well, I mean, most people who I talk to about Airbnb, they just kind of give me the the price they make per night and then they don't even include the cleaning. They're just like, well, cleaning is an add-on, the you know, client pays for it. They don't even factor it in. Um, but yeah, of course, that's that's one of the expenses that that are part of it for sure. Um, but just the power of that, like the power of what you could do with Airbnb is just insane. Like it's like cash flow on steroids. Yeah, it's like a force multiplier. You know, when people talk about being able to scale a real estate portfolio and create cash flow, like something like that can make a huge impact on being able to scale. Mm-hmm. Now, the cool thing about Collingwood is, you know, so I was actually sponsored by Blue Mountain and Interwest, the company that used to own Blue Mountain for 10 years. So I got a, a lot of inside knowledge on basically the thought process. So Blue Mountain, five or six years ago, when winter started to change and, you know, ski season wasn't as long, they made a strategic shift to be able to have more people come up in the summer and the off season. And the off season is just as busy now as the on season for skiing. So the rates that you see in the winter are almost comparable. They're, they're slightly suppressed in the summer, but you can mm-hmm. still get anywhere from a thousand to 1500 bucks a night, you know, in the spring and summer. Yeah. Cause they have the mountain bike culture there too, right? People use the mountain for, for mountain biking. So they actually, because of COVID just got rid of that. However, you know, there's beaches there, there's tons of golfing, um, there's the spas, you know, it's kind of like a nice little retreat for people. And I would say, you know, a lot of people that go to vacation that don't necessarily go to, you know, other places where they have cottages, Blue Mountain's got a really strong rental market. So people can go there that don't have properties to go to. Yeah. I mean, just the beach right there. That's a huge thing, right? Everybody wants to get to these beach towns. Um, we have such nice beaches in Ontario too. Um, I always say this, but I think we like the people who live here just take it for granted because we're from here. We don't realize, you know, what we're kind of overlooking. So I, I definitely see the potential in a place like Blue Mountain in the summer. No, no mountain biking. Like what the heck? How does that, how does that stop the spread of anything? You know what? I think it came down for them. They were having liability issues and it was an excuse for them to uh, basically just cut off the business. I don't think it was a profitable operation for them. And um, I think, you know, it was kind of their excuse to to finally shut it down. It was a loss leader, basically. Fair enough. Okay. I I hear you. Yeah. To get people up there, but it wasn't, it wasn't the profit center. Um, Exactly. How much did their winter shorten? I mean, it may be isolated these last six years, but I mean, of course, we've had some wonky winters lately. What um, what have you seen? I wonder, yeah, you know what? It's interesting. It's like I remember being as a kid and uh, going up there in like November and skiing, and then come March, you know, almost all the snow was gone. Now it's the complete opposite. You know, the past couple of years, blue blue's been open till Easter every year. So, but it's it, you know who knows? Like they're closed yeah. right now, right? They opened a couple of weeks ago and then reclosed again. But the most powerful thing about, you know, Blue Mountain in that area is most people who book are booking four or five months out. So no matter what the ski conditions are, you know, they're still typically booked way in advance and are committed to going. How much would that suck if you booked for December 14th <laughs> and there's no snow? Like right now there's, uh, what is it? It was like 10 degrees yesterday outside. So I don't know if it's as it's cold hard. there. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. It's it's an expensive 
sport, you know, to be in, right. You want to bring kids up there, get a hotel for the weekend or Airbnb food, lift tickets and everything. You're probably looking at like two to three to four grand, maybe. Yeah. And lift tickets are 150 bucks. So in Airbnb is like, like they don't allow cancellations, right? Like there's, there's, you know, you can't cancel the day before for 50% refund um, because the conditions are bad. Correct. Yeah. Like, I guess it's up to you to kind of choose what parameters that you want to have on it, but for something like that, yeah, you're, you're going to do that for sure. Because, you know, you can always fill it if they cancel before. So you don't want ever want someone mm-hmm. canceling that last minute, and but you know, ho- things will happen. People will try to do that for sure. Yeah. Like hotels, like would they have similar policy? Like you can't cancel or, or are they going to have like 24 hour cancellation? You know, it's a good question. I don't know. I haven't seen a hotel up there in a long time, but uh, you know, they're big brand names. So they're probably pretty flexible, but uh, I know the ones in the village are, are pretty strict on that. Yeah. I mean, either way, it's it, it's great. It's just the off chance that you have like a freak week or two in the winter where all of a sudden it gets warm and no one's going to be skiing. But uh, if they had a good base of snow this year, they probably wouldn't have shut down for this week. It would have just been a couple of crappy days of, of skiing until it got cold again. So um, who knows? Either way, I think it's it's a ton of potential. I'm excited to see the kind of numbers you get there. Yeah, me too. I, uh, I'm really, really looking forward to that one being built. I'm hoping it'll be operational for, um, you know, fall next year. So it'll be good to go for the winter season. Okay. So that is the active plan. Uh, you think that you might be able to close on it in the fall of 2022? Yeah, that's, that's the hope that they'll be finished. We're already six months delayed, uh, on construction as per usual. So that's the hope right now, but you know, as soon as I close on it, basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to duplex the basement, you know, make a nice two bedroom unit for myself down there that I can go up on weekends and enjoy. Um, and then Airbnb, the top unit out, you know, I'll, I'll do as much soundproofing as possible, but I'm sure I'll have to put up with some stuff. Well, yeah, if it's un- is it unfinished basement when you get it? Yeah. So I chose to get it unfinished so I can finish it myself. Yeah, man, you can, you can soundproof the crap out of that and, and make it good. I'm sure. Um, especially if you're willing to spend a bit more, the only thing that you won't be able to do is get them to put that soundproof layer on the, uh, uh, top side of the, uh, the deck, but, uh, there's still lots you could do. Yeah. There's always a sacrifice you have to make, but you know what? I think the hope is that one day when I got a family or something that down the road, I'll probably just use the whole place for myself. That's so cool though. So you're just going to leave that empty. It'll be your storage. You'll have your snowboard there or whatever, and you can just go up whenever you want and uh, have a free place to stay. The, the upstairs will take care of any of the costs of the downstairs or the whole place, right? Yeah, I'm essentially house hacking it. You know, house hacking it as like, you know, call it a chalet or a cottage. Love it. That's so cool, man. Um, all right. So anything else you wanted to cover today that we didn't talk about or something you would want to share? Um, yeah, you know, I think maybe I'll talk a little bit about, you know, where I kind of see my business going for, for the next year. So you know, I was super fortunate. Um, I had an article come up recently with Toronto life and, uh, you know, got crazy amount of feedback with that. I had almost a hundred investor inquiries on my website. So I think it's, you know, driving a new chapter of growth for my business. And when we look at, you know, transitioning out of the corporate life over the next 12 to 24 months, I really want to kind of create a bigger infrastructure where I can start bringing in some partners one thing I always find interesting is I feel like a lot of people in our community are always chasing the same money, but there's so much 
other investment money and things like that from Toronto and in the city and people that aren't necessarily, you know, sophisticated real estate investors that want to invest in real estate. And I think that's kind of a main focus of my business of going after, um, and, you know, trying to, to scale it larger, you know, a big goal of mine is to start getting into some LPGP agreements and, you know, mm-hmm. start getting bigger buildings and, you know, bringing multiple partners on and things like that. So, you know, I'm really excited, I guess, for, uh, for 2022, I think it's going to be a big year. Yeah, that sounds awesome, man. Now, are you planning on doing like a proper exempt market product with a prospectus and, and all that when you do the LPGP thing? Or would this just be kind of low key? So I'm actually considering both. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have some friends that are investment bankers that, you know, specifically do that kind of stuff. So there's some guidance there. Um, I'm looking at both, you know, it's a pretty big cost, a pretty big avenue to go down to doing it you know, the proper way. But, you know, that being said, if you can pull it off, there's huge upside. Yeah. I've heard, like I've talked about this with a guy um, quite a bit cause I was considering doing it myself a while back uh, right before like kind of like the first lockdown. That was kind of when I was gearing up. I'm like, okay, what's the product going to be? I'm going to do this. He was saying kind of in a better case scenario, I'd probably be looking at about 40 grand in the first year to get things up and running and, you know, kind of doing it on the cheaper side. And then of course there, it depends. There's like so many different ways you could do it. How big do you want to go and what kind of reporting requirements there would be, but like, just think of how much it unlimits you. And then of course you're going to have, you're going to pay for your capital raise too, right? Like people who, who do the raising, they might, you know, you could be paying six, 7% on actual capital raise. So a lot to consider, but I guess it's, it's the bigger picture. Like what do you see you can do with it? And if it, if it makes sense, then you obviously would pull the trigger on it. But in your case, do you see enough inventory in, in kind of your line of sight, the type of properties you're looking for? Like, is it an Owen Sound expansion or is it, you know, elsewhere in Ontario? Yeah, so I would say, you know, it, it'd be the same thing where it's kind of tier two and tier three markets. Um, I find that there's a nice, you know, obviously it's competitive in, in any asset class in any market you're in. But I find, you know, if you're in um, smaller multifamily buildings, call it the 10 to 30 unit range. You're not competing with the big boys, anything over that you start competing mm-hmm. with, you know, Capreed and Starlight and all those other guys. But, uh, you know, one thing I found really fortunate, it was kind of an eye opening experience for me was Daniel Drimmer who founded Starlight and actually owns it. Um, I reached out to him cold a year and a half ago and he actually gave me two hours of his time just to to kind of walk me through how he built Starlight and how he built his business. And it was super kind for someone like that to to just book time with me and, and give me the attention. But it was cool. So he basically talked about, you know, how they started with their buildings and how he basically took a risk with his family. They created that corporate structure. Um, they found the right bankers and things like that to be able to, you know, put the deals together. And it's one of those things again, too, where it's, you know, not necessarily what you're going to do. You just got to put the team together and all the other experts are pretty much going to, mm-hmm. you know, bring it all happen. But every good deal needs someone to be able to pitch the dream and to pitch the whole concept of it. And I think that's where, you know, I want to be able to think bigger in real estate and be able to kind of bring that to people that, you know, want to invest in real estate, want to invest in bigger projects, but don't necessarily have the expertise to do so. I definitely hear you with the big picture thing. Like I I think very big picture, but I'm also pretty good at the, the minutia, which is actually, I think to my detriment because I'll, you know, I'm, perfectly capable of doing some of the administrative side too, and the bookkeeping and whatever, which is not where I should be spending my time. I feel like me, for me, my highest and best use would be, um, focusing on the dream, focusing on the vision and, and, um, 
you know, kind of delegating the rest. So uh, it's inspiring to hear your story and inspiring to hear you talk about that because I'm, I'm right there with you. I think that that's, uh, that's an incredible value. So any parting wisdom before we wrap up? No, you know, my parting wisdom. Um, so after listening to, to all your episodes over the past two years and kind of reflecting on them, you know, I find it hilarious. I would say some of the predictions from a macroeconomic standpoint that you have made on the podcast were so accurate over the past 12 and 24 months compared to, you know, what the government and everybody else is saying. <laughs> Funny how that works. It, huh? It's hilarious. Like if you go back and you listen to all your episodes, you know, I would say 80 to 90% of your predictions were 100% accurate. <laughs> so yeah. you know, hey, i have man, a real I big respect for that appreciate you saying that uh, <laughs> well you know the, the key difference is no conflict of interest i'm not trying to share sh- to sugarcoat things sometimes i wonder i'm like i don't want to be a black pill that's why often I, like people might notice i just don't say much because if, if you're going to ask me what i think i'm going to tell you and then i'm going <laughs> to we're all going to feel a little gross about it so <laughs> like i just yeah, I try and spin it. Like, what what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to make it profitable? How are we going to use it for ourselves? But yeah, man, no question. It's kind of a bummer sometimes, um, you know, seeing seeing what they're doing here. Uh, you brought it up earlier. You, you saw, you know, our housing crisis isn't going anywhere. I agree. But I mean, man, there's a lot of similarities between, you know, tw- 1920s Germany and the inflation situation that was happening there. Um, and it's every fiat currency's destiny to eventually collapse into nothing. So, you know, where's it, where are we on that time, time horizon? And, uh, one thing for sure, I definitely want to be owning real estate when it happens. I want to be owning things that are of value, not cash. And for me, not Bitcoin, but I know not everybody will agree. <laughs> That'd be better than cash. Yeah. I think everybody has their own kind of avenue that they want to go down, but, uh, I want the exact same page with you. You know, I find of a personal opinion of mine that society is getting a little bit weak and that people that have certain opinions can't express those opinions when a lot of the times the opinions are maybe the fact or the reality, mm-hmm. but, you know, they're being silenced for whatever reason. Um, but people just need to be realist with it. You know, things are happening. Things are changing very quick. And a yeah. lot of people just don't want to accept the reality of, of where we are right now, but they need to. Yeah, there's a lot of apathy you know, people just, they, they want to do their thing. I, I can't be bothered with that. I got a family to think about work to think about, or I'm growing my business and they don't say anything. And, but yeah, we got to get realistic. Like, I think at the end of the day, like there's no sugarcoating it. It's not right. It's not all right to censor people and to shame people for saying what they think. Uh, the, the, yeah, where we're going, I agree with you. We've, we've gone weak and, uh, it's going to take a lot of strength to get us back to some level of sanity. And, uh, I don't know what you're, what you're going to do with that. I mean, some people who are on a similar page, they say, Hey, you know what? We're going to get it while they're getting good. The inflation is an, is an opportunity. And it is like, look how much money people have made in the, in the last little bit. Like, yeah, it's sad in a way for a lot of people, but if, if you're aware of it, do, do something like what you're doing and turn it into an opportunity. Well, that's the thing, right? We live in a capitalist society. If opportunity presents itself, you know, if you don't capitalize on that opportunity, someone else will. And, and that's the, you know, beautiful thing about being in a free society, you have the option to capitalize on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like, you know, things are going in a different way where people don't want to capitalize on it for whatever reason anymore. But, you know, those who do will, will get ahead and those who are destined to go a different path will go a different path. Yeah, exactly. Jack, where do people find you, reach you, follow you? Yes, yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at Burnstone Capital. Uh, my website's www.burnstonecapital.com. And, you know, you can reach out on Facebook or LinkedIn, Jack Bernstein. Okay. I thought it was like, you had me questioning, did I say your name wrong at the beginning? (laughs) 
Bernstone, Bernstein. No, no, it's Bernstein. So yeah, I get that. I get that sometimes. So there's a very famous tax lawyer in Canada named Jack Bernstein. So if you Google Jack Bernstein, it comes up with everything. And if you type in Bernstein, you know, this guy's got hundreds and hundreds of articles. So yeah. um, Bernstone means Bernstein. It's the same thing. Okay. Uh, it was just a little bit more unique and, you know, kind of an easier way for people to find it, search it up. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, ha- I compete with the motorcycle guy. There's like a motorcycle drag racer guy that if you search Andrew Hines <laughs> and we're like the same oh, age nice. too. Yeah. So nice. I don't think there's much confusion there though. So <laughs> <laughs> anyways, man, it's been real, uh, real nice chatting with you and, uh, who knows, maybe if you're, uh, you're going up to blue sometime in this winter, maybe we can, uh, meet up up there. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the time. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Please make sure to share this episode far and wide. Help it help more people. I really appreciate you tuning in. I'll see you on the next one.